starting in the 1820s, Americans began turning out en masse to hear lectures by noted traveling speakers. A new institution was coming into being, the Lyceum. By the late 19th century, the Lyceum was the most significant form of entertainment in the country. Star lecturers like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Frederick Douglass drew enormous crowds. Americans flocked to hear talks on subjects ranging from rights for African Americans to Middle Eastern harems to the natural wonders of the American West. They also increasingly heard speeches on women's rights. Suffragists joined the Lyceum circuit for multiple reasons. Conviction was one. Here was a chance to bring the message of women's suffrage to new audiences. But there was another reason, too. Many of them also were broke. This is Lisa Tetro, a historian at Carnegie Mellon University. These were people who lived in an extremely volatile economy. There were depressions that hit nearly every decade. Men were failed often. They would go into business, they would have a period of productivity, and then they would fail. Many of these women were married to men who were economic failures. And so they needed to earn money. And that was the other attractive piece to this particular form of activism. Tetra says the amount of money women earned on the lecture circuit varied a lot. The most famous speakers might earn as much as $40,000 a year, close to a million dollars today. Most women earn much less, perhaps four or $5,000 a year. But even that was far more than the thousand or so dollars they could earn as, say, a teacher. I asked Lisa Tetro what life was like for the women who made a career of speaking on the Lyceum. Amazingly grueling. You were on the move traveling tremendous distances, and you were speaking sometimes as many as six nights, seven nights a week, and oftentimes two to 220 nights a year. And these lectures would be spaced at incredible intervals. So you would be speaking and then sleeping in some sort of crude accommodation sometimes, and then having to get up in the morning to go catch a stagecoach, and the stagecoach driver was woke up hungover and drunk, and so your stagecoach left late, which means you got to your next engagement late, and then you slept in another strange place, and then you got on a train, and maybe there was a lot of snow on the train tracks at some point, and so the train got derailed, and then... So it was, it was an incredibly grueling life, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton has a really funny story where she gives a lecture and then goes to catch a train and the train's not there. And so she just rolls up her, her bag and lays down on the on the platform, on the on the bench and goes to sleep. <laughs> but she's awoken by hearing a bunch of men in the adjacent room debating the merits of her lecture that night. Um, so, so it was a jet-setting life, if you will, and one that was sometimes exhausting. Well, how would a woman get into the Lyceum Circuit. How would you go about becoming a lecturer? A woman would often do her training with a suffrage organization where she would go and learn the craft of speaking. It was not something you just did randomly. You had to learn the skills of being a public orator. And you had to learn how to please an audience, how to project, all of these types of things. So one of the things people did is they got jobs with suffrage organizations and went out with veteran speakers and learned how to give a lecture. And then in time, they started to try to look then for more lucrative opportunities. Suffrage organizations couldn't pay very much. So a woman named Mary Eastman, for example, apprentices with a suffrage organization and then becomes so good at her craft that she's able to then go out and get independent engagements that she would arrange herself or she would hire an agent who would get them for her. 
And at that point, the suffrage organizations had lost her oratory skills. She would go off then and pursue top dollar through um, work with an agent and then maybe get hired by one of the big lecture bureaus. So how did the uh, organized suffrage movement feel about this? It sounds to me like they were losing some of their best talent, or was it not so competitive? I can imagine them thinking, well, you know, we're training these people, and now they're going out and speaking in front of uh, audiences and delivering a message to people we might not be able to reach. There were mixed reactions. Many of the people who then went off and were independent lecturers remained tied to suffrage organizations, so they didn't necessarily lose their services or even their allegiance, but they did lose control over what they might say on the lecture circuit. And that could sometimes give people distress. Um, Sometimes suffrage organizations wanted a more coordinated message. And women had to think about pleasing a paying audience. So they didn't always gauge their lectures to reflect the kinds of things suffrage organizations might have wanted them to say. What's an Um, example of uh, women on the Lyceum circuit getting off message, as they would say today. There was a, a woman, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, for example, and she had several lectures that she would advertise. One of them was woman's right to the ballot, but then if that one wasn't promising in terms of door receipts or wasn't going to attract a big enough audience, or even if there had already been a reform speaker there last week, she had in her back pocket a, a lecture on woman in ancient Egypt. Still, <laughs> was, still Always was, a crowd pleaser, right? <laughs> right. Still about women, but not necessarily going to... Um, going to help with the cause for suffrage. And would she so, would she adjust um, on the fly? Would she, she might. Kind of start she out might. talking about suffrage, take a look at the crowd and say, this is definitely an Egyptian crowd? <laughs> she could tell by the headdress. Um, she might. Um, but chances are the people would have come expecting to hear one lecture sure. that would have been pre-advertised. So she, she probably wouldn't. But people did extemporize on the spot. And since they did often speak extemporaneously, they could shift their topics to meet what they perceived the interest of the crowd to be. So I'll 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 commit the cardinal historical sin of asking a counterfactual, but mm-hmm. how would the women's suffrage movement have been different if the whole Lyceum network had not existed? I think it would have been much weaker. The women's rights movement as far back as the antebellum period all the way through the 19th century relied fundamentally on oratory and lectures as a central piece of its organizing model. And it remained really central all the way through to the winning of the 19th Amendment. So I think without lecturing, we would have had a much more attenuated movement and we would have had um, really, really broke organizations that would not have been able to raise money because they wouldn't have been able to pass a hat, you know, charge admission at the door at the end of their conventions. And we would have had a lot of women who wouldn't have been able to have supported themselves as reformers. Also, the the Lyceum contributed to the shape of the movement, not just as vibrancy, but also to the forms that it ended up taking. The movement was not a kind of bureaucratic, tightly organized, top-down movement with leaders, you know, at the helm giving marching orders to people. This was a movement that people went out and kind of pioneered on their own. They could go out and they could be lecturers on their own. And some people stayed away from any organized allegiance so that they could just be this, they could be their own show. They could be a one-woman movement in a way. And the Lyceum created this really decentralized 
fleet of one-woman movements who went out and pioneered their own ideas about women's rights and about women's suffrage. Lisa, I'm going to push you on that because, you know, the metaphor that was used for political parties were armies and machines, well-oiled machines. They were effective political organizations. Uh, Might the women's suffrage movement been stronger if it hadn't been so decentralized? It would have been different strong, I suppose you could say. Um, And it each had its merits. I think the kinds of decentralization that the Lyceum movement encouraged created a great deal of vibrancy of its own. It was a kind of decentralized vibrancy, however, that drove movement veterans like Susan B. Anthony crazy. She was was really put out by the fact that all these women were out um, diving into activism on their own and not taking marching orders from the people who she thought knew best, which were the more veteran activists of the movement. So I think there are lots of ways in which you can look at social movements. I don't know that a tightly coordinated and centralized social movement gives a certain kind of vibrancy, but that might be a more one-note vibrancy, whereas the sheer numbers of people on the Lyceum and the many notes that they were singing meant that you had a kind of chorus that that is its own type of strength. Lisa Tatro is a historian at Carnegie Mellon University. Her book is The Myth of Seneca Falls, Memory and the Women's Suffrage Movement, 1848-1898. Tatro talked about the one-woman movements that populated the Lyceum circuit. We tell the story of one of those women, Anna Dickinson, this week on our website. Drop by and have a listen. That's at BackstoryRadio.org. It's time for another short break, but don't go away. When we get back, a president mysteriously disappears to do some soul searching and has to come up with a speech to answer for himself when he returns. You're listening to Backstory, and we'll be back in a minute. 